Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building Local Power. I am your co-host Reggie Rucker and we're continuing this season of How to Get Away with Merger by keeping with the conversation on corporate consolidation in the energy sector. Our last episode featured the story of a coalition able to block a bid from a multinational energy firm to buy the dominant local energy provider. Today's story might not have quite as happy of an ending, but our guests will make you as hopeful as ever. So hopeful, in fact. We're going to focus the full episode on just his story and how it intersects with the merger. To get into it, let me toss it over to my co-host, who I am very excited to play cribbage with later this week for the very first time, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? Oh man, I am so excited to play cribbage. It's really the perfect time of year for it, and it's also a perfect time of year for this episode, which so well details one of the biggest issues we face today, environmental destruction. Our guest on the show today both lays out where we are now, but also, as we head into the new year, a path forward. Our guest today, Miguel Escoto, is one of the founders of Sunrise El Paso, which is now transitioning to Amanacer People's Project which is a community-led climate justice organization in El Paso, Texas, that advocates, organizes, and builds power around clean air, clean water, and democratic control. Miguel is also the organizing director of Oilfield Witness, where alongside his colleague Sharon Wilson visits oil and gas shales to document emissions and share with the public and elected officials to support climate justice movements. But let's start from the beginning. Here's Miguel. My name is Miguel Escoto. I was born and raised here in El Paso, Texas, in the borderland, both sides of the border. Uh, This is my hometown, my home community. Like many people here in the border, like many fronterizos, um, I have deep ties to both sides of the border. A lot of my family is from Mexico, still there in, in Ciudad Juarez. Most of my childhood was in Ciudad Juarez. My parents and I would cross the border every morning very early so I could have an education in the U.S. And so that's a pretty common experience here. Um, Very, very uh, porous and rich interconnected cultures. I moved uh, from Juarez to El Paso permanently in around 2007 because of the increased violence from the from the drug war and that was very impactful for me because i understood the privilege i had in being able to cross the border to flee for safety essentially and that is what led me to my first organizing experience in the world of immigration justice, I helped fundraise for two local immigration advocacy organizations here in El Paso, Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center and Migrant and Service Clinic run by the Catholic Church here. So that was my first uh, introduction into activism and organizing was through uh, the issue of migrant justice. Um, but eventually, I 
I understood how the climate crisis was connected to the immigration justice issue because I would witness and learn and read about how a lot of what drives immigration and refugees in Latin America, Africa, and Asia is an increased change in climate, right? Um, rising sea levels, hotter climates, increased floods is what is leading to a lot of um, climate refugees. So I sort of turned my focus to immigration, to, to climate justice. And that led me to understand how El Paso in West Texas is plays a very important factor in the global climate crisis because of the Texas oil fields, especially the Permian Basin, which is a huge, huge part of the global problem of climate change. Texas is at the epicenter of the global climate crisis, but Miguel and the Amanacer People's Project view it as a promising opportunity to demonstrate the potential of transitioning to green energy. Let's dive into the interview. Can you tell us a little bit about what the energy industry looks like in Texas? You know, who are the big players? How much of the market do they control? So unfortunately, oil and gas reigns in Texas. Texas has some of the worst oil and gas shales in the world. Uh, one of them is the Permian Basin, uh, which is in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. The Permian is the number one source of climate emissions on the planet, according to data from Climate Trace map. Um, it produces an extreme amount of, of oil and gas every day. Uh, currently, the Permian is producing more than 5 million barrels of oil per day. And that number is expected to increase to 10 million barrels of oil per day by 2030. This, this is just contradictory to every rec scientific rem recommendation regarding fixing the climate crisis. The science is telling us that we need to stop production, stop drilling new wells, stop new fracking. Uh, but the exact opposite is happening in the Permian and in Texas in general. There's also the Eagle Ford Shale in, in South Texas, which is producing over 1 million barrels of oil per day. So it's like the 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 evil little brother of the Permian Basin is the, the Eagle Ford. There's also the Barnett Shale, the Haynesville Shale. So overall, there are more than... 275,000 active oil and gas wells in Texas. And there is just an extreme amount of production, which is a problem because of the current era of climate crisis that we're living in. It's also a problem that uh, the state government overwhelmingly protects fossil fuel profits at the expense of the health of Texans and the environment as a whole. The Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates oil and gas, not railroads, aim to inspect facilities once every five years. Uh, so that 
is woefully inadequate. We that that's that means there's only one inspector for every a thousand six hundred oil and gas facilities. That's just unmanageable. It's effectively unregulated um, in the Permian. There's also um, flaring, which is a process related to oil and gas production, uh, which is largely inevitable by the oil and gas industry. But this is where excess gas uh, needs to exit the production system. And in the process is um, the process of flaring combusts this gas so that it emits less. But generally, flaring is also unpermitted and unmanaged by the Texas regulatory system. A study by Earthworks, uh, which was done by Jack McDonald and Sharon Wilson, demonstrates that um, 69 to 84% of flares do not have the necessary permits in order for them to flare. Uh, so it's going largely unregulated and unknown by the industry. There is, an, there is a big emergency here in Texas in that we have an extreme amount of production and we have a government that refuses to regulate the industry to protect its residents, its workers, and the environment. Okay, so having laid that out, can you sort of provide us the context for where El Paso Electric fits into the industry and in doing so, help us to understand why Infrastructure Investment Fund, which is sort of a, a associated with J.P. Morgan Chase, why they were interested in acquiring El Paso Electric. El Paso is in far west Texas. It is uh, a couple of hours drive from the Permian Basin. And it is economically and culturally connected to this oil field. Culturally, it's connected because a lot of the oil and gas workers that are extracting oil and gas in the Permian are from El Paso or, or grew up here, are working the, the fields because that is what is economically available in this community. It is economically also connected because the utility that runs the El Paso service area, El Paso Electric, is physically hooked up to the Permian Basin. So El Paso is the 10th sunniest city in the entire world. And it only uses 5% renewable energy in its grid, which is a big squandered opportunity that has a very clear explanation. El Paso Electric Utility is an anomaly, in, even in Texas, it is both a monopoly and a privatized company. So in other cities in Texas, it's either one or the other. This means that El Paso Electric as a private company that has a monopoly over its customer base has a incentive to cut business deals with the fossil fuel industry right on their doorstep including the largest and most active oil and gas well, oil and gas shale in the in, in the world, right? That is why even before Infrastructure Investment Fund or JP Morgan got involved, El Paso Electric was hooked up to the Permian 
they run three major gas plants, um, Newman, Montanavista, and Rio Grande, that power the city by receiving fracked gas from the Permian and converting it into electricity. This is a process that emits a lot of, of pollution um, to the climate, like CO2, but also emissions that hurt and harm our respiratory health, like uh, particulate matter, volatile organic compounds. And that's why El Paso is the 13th worst polluted city in the, in the country when it comes to ozone and why a lot of this community has asthma. So this horrible hellscape of fossil fuel production and pollution is what attracted JP Morgan Chase. In, in 2019, um, they started their lobbying to have the city government approve their acquisition of El Paso Electric. JP Morgan Chase is one of the largest shareholders and profiteers of the Permian Basin oil and gas shale. They directly invest in drilling companies such as Diamondback Energy. JP Morgan is the currently the seventh largest investor of this company, just as an example. So they are profiting from the production of oil and gas, and they wanted to profit from the consumption of this gas directly in a utility scale. Oil and gas and Permian Basin notwithstanding, El Paso Electric is a very profitable business. They have a revenue of around $800 million, gross profits of upwards of $353 million per year because they have a very sweet deal of being privatized and having a monopoly which is a problem when it comes to a, what should be a public good like electricity, the way roads, schools, fire departments, um, education should be a public good. Electricity should also be a public good. But we have this very oppressive system here in, in El Paso where a private company has control over it. This is what really attracted JP Morgan to, to buy out El Paso Electric. In 2019, you said that J.P. Morgan and infrastructure investment funds started lobbying. Can you talk about a little bit about what that lobbying looked like and then get into the public response to it, the opposition to it, and how that played out? J.P. Morgan Chase representatives and lobbyists and lobbyists from infrastructure investment fund, they ran a full campaign to convince the city council, the elected representatives, of the municipal government to approve the merger. It was something that was ultimately in the hands of elected officials. Their first tactic was to lie to the elected officials and to the public by saying fundamental myths, lies. One of them was that infrastructure investment fund had no connection to JP Morgan Chase, that they weren't owned by JP Morgan. This was something that has been disproven thoroughly, even at a federal level now with the research hard work of Tyson Slocum, for example. The second one was to um, convince the unelected bureaucrats in the municipal government, including the city manager and the city attorney, that they that in fact, 
El Paso had no say over this. They tried to convince the elected officials that this was not up to them. This is just something that is going to happen between two corporations. The government should not be involved, which is, again, a lie because they needed a vote by city council in order for, for this to go through. So Sunrise El Paso led a organized resistance to prevent this. And this included going to city council meetings to, to pressure our elected officials. We would stage direct actions. We held community meetings uh, to inform the public about what was happening. And we created a pretty powerful movement that led to this being a discussion at least. And so ultimately, unfortunately, the city council did vote in favor of this buyout five to four. So it was a very close, very close fight. We at least pulled back the, the veil, pulled back the curtain to educate a lot of the public about what was happening and why our electric grid is something that belongs to us, should belong to us instead of private corporations connected to fossil fuel production and pollution in the Permian Basin. This is my first time hearing of a merger that could be stopped by a city council. Is there something that's unique about the way that Texas utilities operate where there is that local government sort of say in whether or not this merger can happen? Uh, yeah, like can you can you explain that a little bit more? This is a very special case because under the, the franchise agreement that allowed the utility to be privatized and monopolized, there, there was part of that contract was to give city council some sort of say when something this big happened. And unfortunately, the, in this incredible moment of leverage, the city refused to negotiate against the utility to give us more guaranteed rate reductions or have them commit to more renewable energy, et cetera. But that that incident taught us that within the city government, there is a lot of protectionism and defending of El Paso Electric. That's not how government should work. The government is not is not meant to serve the interests of a private company at the expense of the public. It should be the other way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Acquisition only happened a few years ago, so maybe it's too early to tell, but are there ways in which you're already starting to see this, this acquisition play out to the, presumably to the detriment of sort of El Paso residents and the, and the community there? Very shortly after the buyout was approved, our nightmares and our fears were made reality. Right during the campaign, we kept warning that if JP Morgan had control over the utility, they would only further their commitment to fossil fuel production instead of renewables. And that is a thousand percent what happened. Only months after the, the buyout, the utility announced the permit application for the project known as Newman 6, 
this would be adding a massive 228 megawatt turbine to the existing Newman generating station. This gas plant is located in Northeast El Paso and very near a marginalized, largely Spanish speaking, uh, immigration mixed status, low income community, Chaparral. And so very shortly after the buyout, we knew that they were doubling down on their commitment to fossil fuels. Uh, this project that they wanted permits for would cost the El Paso electric ratepayer $163 million. It would massively increase pollution. Um, for example, it would bring the station's CO2 emissions to 1.3 million tons per year, which is, again, unacceptable in this era of climate crisis. So Sunrise El Paso Amanecer People's Project strongly and passionately fought against this permit as well. We organized to pressure our state and municipal elected officials to reject this. We eventually organized alongside with the frontline community members of Chaparral. Um, we were able to challenge the permit at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and we won enough leverage to get some concessions from El Paso Electric. The, the state government regula regulatory system is not designed to prevent fossil fuel companies from getting their permits like this, but it did, it was a victory in the sense that we won a lot of concessions. Because of our fight, we won a legal commitment to never expand the gas plant, that specific gas plant ever again. Uh, we won a four-year moratorium on any new fossil fuel projects. Um, this is very important because El Paso Electric was already planning on a Newman 7 and a Newman 8. They just wanted to continue building out more, more gas instead of renewables. And we won a 40% reduction of CO2 emissions and ozone-forming nitrous oxide pollution. So we, we reduced the pollution 40% than otherwise would have been occurring. And that was an important, important fight for us. But unfortunately, their own business plans demonstrate that they still want to add more megawatt production and fossil fuel capacity into the future and decades to come. For example, they're planning a 88 megawatt gas-fired generation in 2032. They want to add another gas-fired unit, unit of 52 megawatts in 2034. They want to add another 80 megawatt unit in 2038 and another 54 megawatt combustion turbine in 2040. So this is just unacceptable. It is unacceptable for them to do this. It is a attack on our climate. It is an attack on our lungs. And it is something that at Amanda said, People's Project, we will work very hard. We will build enough power to prevent this from happening. These turbines, they are designed to last 40 years. And if we continue to build more fossil fuels, it is game over for the planet and for humanity. 
So we're not going to allow that to happen. I know the fighting process is so much of the battle, and it can be hard spending time dreaming. But what would El Paso's energy future look like if it was up to Amanacer People's Project? Our main message and main goals are clean water, clean air, and democratic power over our resources, including our electric grid. Um, we, our vision is for our electricity to be to be something that's run as a public good instead of a, a private profit, and we want to build enough power to where our electric grid works for us instead of J.P. Morgan shareholders. And the positive aspect of the great silver lining is that there is wild solar potential in Texas, especially here in the Southwest. Like I said, we're the 10th sunniest city in the planet, um, and we only have 5% renewable energy. We could turn that around in a matter of a couple of years. We could experience and win a massive boom of solar production, renewable production, and clean energy and green jobs, right? This would ultimately be a massive job creator in our in our region. So that's our vision, that um, it's not economic prosperity at the expense of environmental health. They're actually the same destiny. We can win both a, renew a clean, renewable future and an economy that works for the 99% of us. Before we jump into our final book question, I wanted to follow up with some additional information Miguel sent me. Just last month, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission came out about the ties between Infrastructure Investment Fund and J.P. Morgan. A public comment letter to the Federal Reserve stated that this relationship, quote, undermines any potential for independence between the two entities. At least for El Paso, this was a little too late. Find out more about this in the show notes. All right, back to the interview. Is there a book that you would recommend to the listeners so that they could yeah, dive deeper into the issue and get a, get a better sense of what you all are working on? One really good book that I recommend is um, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal by Kate Aronoff and, and other journalists and scholars. They provide a really good analysis for how we can transition to renewable energy in a way that supports the economy of the 99%. And they specifically talk about energy democracy. They bring up the notorious uh, PG&E in California. But this is a, a great analysis that has informed a lot of what we do here in El Paso. And as of yet, we don't have books written about written about what we do here in El Paso, but we do have a few podcast series that uh, we, we've produced to share our story. One of them is a, is a three-part podcast series that is called Direct Climate Democracy Radio. Direct Climate Democracy Radio it, it tells the story of how we fought the J.P. Morgan buyout, how we fought the Newman Six Gas Plant, and how that led to the creation of a ballot initiative called the El Paso Climate Charter, uh, which was a climate action plan for the local city governments to 
take bold action against the utility to begin the process of transitioning the utility to public ownership. That 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 podcast series, as well as another eight-part podcast series on Texas oil fields called Murdering Our Stars. And that that's again a deep dive into Texas oil fields, the situation in the Permian Basin when it comes to radioactive waste, climate pollution, oil and gas worker dangers on the job, etc. That those would be my recommendations. Thank you all for covering this. What a great story. Thank you, Miguel. And thanks to all of you for listening all the way to the end. I assume that means you like this episode, so please share it with even just one person you think will enjoy it too. We have a goal of 10,000 listens for this episode, so help us get there. And if you're not a subscriber to the podcast yet, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you know when every new episode drops. And of course, your donations are essential to help us keep this podcast going and support the research and resources that we make available on our website for free. We truly welcome and appreciate it all. And last, if you have feedback for us or want to share a story about how your community approaches this issue, send us an email to buildinglocalpower at ilsr.org. We'd love to share these on a special mailbag episode one day. We'll definitely keep an eye out. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Luke Gannon and Andrew Frank. The music for the season is also composed by Andrew Frank. Thank you so much for listening to Building Local Power.